Well, we're in a, like I said, the second week of a series called Portrait, uh, where last week, if you were not here, Richard, we did a video of our senior pastor, Richard, talking about kind of what the overarching thesis of the series is, and and really it's this idea that we live in a time when uh, God and the church and Christianity, the gospel has really been kind of uh, distorted, Um, and I don't know if it's a unique time, it's been that way. (laughs) And we desire, though, to be people who reveal who God is, God's character, really Christianity. We want to be a part of a movement that isn't toxic. I don't think you joined it thinking, I want to be part of a toxic movement. (laughs) uh, But we want it to be a a world-changing and life-giving movement. And so we hope through this series that we can add clarity to really who God is and who we're called to be as God's people in in this world. And so we're each week considering um, kind of a a key distortion of the gospel that is prevalent, and then a way in which the gospel, God's word, corrects that. And this morning we come to one that is one of the main problems the human race has ever faced, and that is this problem that Christianity is based on us versus them. Um, David Fitch, he's a professor at Northern Seminary in Chicago, pastor there as well, has written a book with that title recently, a really good book called The Church of Us Versus Them, uh, subtitled Freedom from a Faith that Feeds on Making Enemies. And here's what he observes, and see this, if this resonates with your experience. Uh, quote, he, he says, we're living in an angry times. Wherever we go, whatever we watch, however we do things, in it all, our culture is rife with strife, antagonisms, and vitriol. Everybody, it seems, is caught up with warding off yet another enemy. Meanwhile, the church appears little different. We become the church of us versus them, caught up in the same antagonism and disgust for one another that's evident elsewhere in our society. And then he ends that quote with this question, uh, what happened? What, what happened? <laughs> like when the leader and the founder of your movement um, calls us to love our enemies, bless those who persecute you, and yet we're doing the exact, exact opposite, whatever happened? Where did we go wrong? So today we're just going to look in more depth at that question, kind of hone in on, on what's the problem? And then what's God's solution to it? Like, how did we get here and where do we go from here? Okay? And we'll do that through Ephesians 2, I think, which articulates perhaps better than any place in Scripture that problem as well as God's solution. Okay? So first the problem, then the solution. And the problem is articulated by Paul in verses 11 to 15. So if you have that open, you can look at it. But it's a case study, really, when Paul talks about the circumcision and uncircumcision, Jew and Gentile, that's verse 11, Existing in a state of hostility. Now, the key here for us real, real quickly is that for Paul, Jew and Gentile are every race on planet Earth. For him, there are two categories of people. Jewish people, he's Jewish, and Gentiles who are non-Jewish people. So that, if you're Paul, or if you're reading this, he's speaking toward every racial or ethnic group in the world. Okay, We have to kind of broaden the lens out a little bit. He's speaking to every person, every people, every one of you, every one of us. Okay? That said, the case study here in verse 14 is that there's a dividing wall of hostility that lies between the races, okay? And that word hostility, we, in our translation this morning, had antagonism, is a word that, it's brought twice in the passage, very important word. It's a word that literally means hatred. There's hatred between the races. Enmity in the old King James, Fitch, that author I just quoted, uses the word vitriol. It's a very colorful word, but it just means hate. And that, that, so it's basically the same thing, which leads to this question for us, like, what caused so much hatred between people? Like, what caused it? Especially those that are so different from each other. 
And the answer Paul provides is in verse 15, where he points to the cause, which is the law with its commandments and rules. Okay? So that's the thing that we need to focus on that's created the hate, that is a barrier and animosity between people groups. Okay? The law of God. In other words, the Old Testament, all rules, regulations, how to live a holy life, has become between people a barrier separating them instead of joining them. Now, for some of us who go, whoa, you're, that's, half the, that's more than half the Bible. What's the problem? Well, it's an ironic problem because, see, the Jews were given this law, Old Testament. To us, it's an Old Testament. To them, it's just their Bible, okay, uh, as a gift. It's a rich source of blessing intended to be that. You can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, chapter 28. And through it, they were supposed to be a, a holy, godly nation, a light to all nations, and show all the other nations of the world, the Gentile nations, what godliness and holiness looked like. That's basically the thesis of the book of Isaiah. If you read Isaiah 42, 49, 52, 60, it's all about being a light to the nations. That's what it's about. In fact, we'll look at this during Advent, and we're going to use a lot of Isaiah in that. That's why Jesus comes, to be a light to the nations. Okay? And we're Gentiles. (laughs) Light to us. Okay? So all which is to say the law of God was supposed to be a blessing to and for everybody who ever walked the face of planet Earth. And yet, Paul says in Ephesians that we, we are instead living... In a, in a sort of time of curse, like it's a source of hostility and hatred instead of being a, a source of blessing. On the one hand, the Jews, are des- they despise the Gentiles because they don't have the law. They don't follow the law. They, they are viewed, as Paul says in verse 12, as unclean, without hope, and without God. Interestingly, the word without God, it's a one Greek word, it's atheos. It's where we get the word atheist from. And this is actually a racial slur in the time of Jesus. People would walk around, Jewish people, and say to non-Jewish people, they call them atheos. It's a way of putting, putting them in their place. You are an atheos. And that's where we get our term atheist from. Okay? That's what Paul's saying, that they would call each other this. On the other hand, the Gentiles come to despise the Jews just because they're, they, just, they're, they despise them. Like, there's nothing more despicable than someone despising you, right? Like, it doesn't go well if you just hate on somebody, hate on your friends at school, they're not going to want to be your friends for very long, right? So as a result, there's this hostility and the good gift of God that the Jews have been given uh, has become an occasion for hatred between people. Does this make sense to you? Now, so that's the case study. But I, I want to invite us to zoom the lens out because, like I said, it's, it's, it stands for every race, every group, every people, every person, every conflict in the world. Not just religious conflicts. These are not, just, this is not, these are not religious categories Paul's talking about. These are socioeconomic racial, political. You can think of any category here and the the conflict that is happening right now, you could put into this bucket. And here's what I mean by that. So in his groundbreaking book in 2015, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, Jonathan Sachs, amazingly brilliant guy. Like, read his stuff. He has this book that I read in 2015 called Not in God's Name, subtitled Confronting Religious Violence, okay? And he talks about this very thing that Paul's talking about, and he labels it uh, this principle called pathological dualism. And I'm going to read a quote from him, a little bit longer quote, so just kind of tune in. He says that uh, dualism comes in many forms, and not all of them are dangerous. So we're familiar with some of these. There's platonic dualism, which differentiates between mind and body. We talk about this a lot at Bethany, this mind-body split, and how it's led to a lot of uh, bad body image in the church, right, in the culture. There's also... Theological dualism uh, that we actually often hold up as well that sees these different supernatural forces at work in the universe. There's moral dualism that sees good and evil as instincts within us which we have to 
choose between and squelch, right? There's all kinds of dualism. But, he says, there's also uh, something called pathological dualism, which sees humanity as radically, ontologically divided between the unimpeachably good and the irredeemably bad. And he goes on to say you're either one or the other in this sort of framework, either one of the saved, the redeemed, or the chosen, or the, the quote-unquote other, a child of Satan, and thus the devil's disciple. Pathological dualism, he says, not Gnosticism or Manichaeism, which are those others, both of which are about the gods and spirituality, but it's not difficult to see, he says, how one could lead to the other because the, our views of the natural often shape our ideas of the supernatural, okay? In other words, he says, theology inevitably creates anthropology, okay? Now listen to this. A world in which we as embodied people, we're just physical beings, are constantly choosing between in-group and out-group. And we do this all day long, every day. We do it at church. A world in which we ultimately divide humanity into absolute categories of good and evil, in which all the good's on one side and all the evil's on the other side. Sorry if I put you on the other side, friends. Our side's the good side. The other side's the evil side. And so evil's just trying to destroy the good, and therefore your enemies are trying to destroy you, And there's no obvious evidence of that. This is him quoting, by the way. This is a sign they're working in secret. And if they deny it, this is proof their accusations are true. And since they're evil and we're good, they're the cause of all that's wrong with the world. And thus we must eliminate them. Uh, And so that we can live a good life that we're entitled to and and have the honor and superiority that we, it can be our right that was given to us by God. That's, Sachs says, the pathological dualism that leads to altruistic evil, which has murderous consequences. And I'll just say, wow. Because that was written in March of 2015, and he spent a long time writing that before March of 2015. And look where we are today, October 6th or 5th or whatever of 2019. Uh, I mean, wow, to think of this. Like in our most sinful and fallen condition and moments, we get our identity by looking down at others, excluding others, othering others, until they no longer share our humanity. This is what we do as sinful people. And God's image, we... And so in doing so, what, what Sachs is saying is we prolong this narrative of pathological dualism and hostility that's been going on since the beginning of time. And Paul warns us that when we do this, and we elevate, and we denigrate, and we separate, and we divide, we just fall into the same trap that Jews and Gentiles are falling into that has had consequences, murderous consequences throughout history. Like Sachs talks about in his book that this was the mindset that, that fueled the rhetoric that was used by the Nazis against the Jews that incited a Holocaust. This was the same idea mindset that was true in the 1990s in Rwanda where the Hutus literally called the Tutsis Inyenzi, which is the, the uh, Rwandan word for uh, cockroach. And so that was the mindset that led to a genocide where millions of people were assassinated and killed. In the 90s, this was true of the Serbian media. They used xenophobia toward the other ethnicities in Yugoslavia, and they characterized particularly ethnic Albanians as rapists, counter-revolutionaries, and a threat to the nation, which led to a huge conflict. For Catholics in the 16th century, this is Lutheran Protestants. For Protestants, this was Anabaptists. Uh, very often for evangelicals, it's mainliners. For, like, for us, it's them, right? Uh, for people in the suburbs, historically, it's been those in the inner cities, for Republicans today, it's Democrats. For Democrats, it's Republicans. For Seahawks fans, it's 49ers. For the Huskies, it's the Cougars, or maybe it's the Ducks. I don't know. But that's obviously just to lighten the mood a little bit. But the point is nobody is immune today. Nobody's immune. We are all of us in this boat together. And indeed, as, as N.T. Wright observes about this, he says, uh, 
because there's still division on the face of the earth today, we, by us, we, the church, quite urgently face this question, which Paul would insist on is the main question, which is to say, if our churches and our communities and our societies are still divided in any way, shape, or form along racial, cultural, political lines, our gospel, our very grasp of the meaning of Jesus' death is not just malformed, it's compromised and thus fundamentally called into question. It's no wonder that people look at the gospel of Jesus and go, I don't know, that's not good news. Because it, it seems to them more like a club and a clique. So that's, a, that's the problem. And do you, do you see it? What a major problem the walls of division were then are still today, both within our church, not maybe, maybe our church, I don't know, within the church, uh, but also within the society at large. Like we're in a moment of crisis. This is why we're talking about it today. We're not just in the midst of a defining political moment. Like we are in the, uh, the defining theological moment right now when we need to ask ourselves, where is the good news? Where's the good news? Because it's often not out there right now. Like I have this news feed on my Apple, fo- my, Apple my iPhone. Every, every week you go through the Apple News app and uh, if you scroll way down, like way, way down, past People Magazine, past Entertainment Weekly, you get down there and there's this thing called the, the Good News Spotlight. Haven't you guys seen this? It, you'll find it. You'll find it today. It highlights all the encouraging, uplifting stories. Like there was this puppy dog that was saved in Kansas and, you know, like these kids in wherever, you know, their climate strike with Greta. The important stuff, stuff that you go, whatever. Um, but uplifting stories from the week that you probably missed because <laughs> they're way down there. And boy, do we miss these. Where's the good news today? That's the question. And it's confronting the church because we're called good news. <laughs> it's the gospel. That's what gospel means. And we're in a defining moment. What will come to define us as God's people? Where will we find our identity as God's people? And how will we communicate the good news to people outside of this church? That's the question. So that's the problem. Let's go to the solution because I don't want to leave you just like, uh, you know? So here's the solution. And Paul offers it. Um, it's in a fascinating solution. Uh, Because it says that God, in verse 14, brought peace by breaking down the barrier that laid between the races, thus removed uh, by the cross the hostility of the law with all its commandments and rules, making him in himself, here's the key, making in himself out of the two, one, one new humanity. Actually, it says in literal Greek, one new man, uh, but because Greek is a little more flexible language than English, it could say one new human. But it's interesting, it's not... Uh, it's meant to think, you're meant to think of this as a person, not humanity as a bunch of peoples, but a person. If you could think of just like, <laughs> what's that cartoon where the, they, they get on, the, they get in the, never mind. It's not Transformers, but the one with the lions and they, Voltron, but like that, but not, just don't go there. A new, a new human, thank you. <laughs> Which is this word, it's a very strong actually word in Greek, it's anthropos, where we get anthropology from. And, and, and the key there is in, in Greek literature of the time, it's a reference to uh, the, the nature of a person without distinction to sex or race or gender or anything. It's a human being, just a human being. And we, we put, like, I think of you as a woman who's older than me and Caucasian. Like, this is just sort of, if I could strip all that away, I'd just see you as a human. I've never done that. And Paul's calling us through the cross to be able to do that. It includes all people. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I've never had that experience. And so God creates humanity. This is 
Genesis 1.26 theology, God creates humanity in God's image. And then he creates them male and female. But go back before that. God creates them in God's image, not in your image or your image. God's image. Have, and so I'll ask you, have you seen God? <laughs> well, you think you have. You've seen the old man with the beard, but you haven't seen God, okay? So God creates humanity in God's image. One to, all people, every person walking the face of the earth displays the image of God. There's no person who's ever walked the face of the earth that's not, I mean, the most evil, vile person you can think of and the most saintly person you can think of. Both are image bearers. That's amazing. And thus, it's God's intention because in some of us, like the ones who think they're just holier than thou are full of pride and the ones who are pretty evil are full of pride. (laughs) And so it's God's intention to repair the breach that lies between us and within us this wall of division, the animosity and enmity that, that occurs very early in Genesis, really early, not even just Cain and Abel, but Adam and Eve, and it's continued through at our time. It's God's intention to heal that and create in humanity a new humanity, a new human. As Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, a new creature, a new creation, something you've never seen before. And Jesus can do that because he, he, dis- he displays it. A being that transcends, once again, Gender, race, ethnicity, culture, politics, even religion. Like Jesus didn't think of himself as a Christian or evangelical, my friends. He would have thought himself as Jewish probably, but he's transcending all that. He's trying to get us outside those categories. He's a transcendently good human being. He is made in the image of God. He understood that about himself, and he wants us through his life, death, resurrection to understand that about ourselves and our neighbors, okay? An entirely new thing. And, and, and in that new thing, we now have the capacity, this is the crazy part, to bring healing to a broken world. Jesus offers us through his cross to heal the deep rift within humanity and then send us out as his image bearers to bring healing where there's still brokenness. That's amazing. And that's, I mean, that brings a lot of, uh, I mean, can I get an amen? Because <laughs> that, I, like, this is not about coexisting. Okay, that coexist bumper sticker on cars where it's just like, just put all the progressives and the moderates together and maybe some conservatives in there and some Jews and Gentiles and some black and white, like all on a bumper sticker together and coexist. Uh, This is about being unified into one new person that transcends everything that you've ever, 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 every classification, every category. As Paul says in Galatians 3, there's neither in this paradigm Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, which, by the way, is not a statement on racial, religious, or gender politics. Not at all. This is just Paul saying it's God's way of erasing the common divisions between us and within us and bringing a new definition in Christ. In other words, it's one thing to share the same race or ethnicity with somebody, uh, same culture. That's a profound source of connection Um, because you share the same language, the same food, the same sort of way to celebrate holidays. I mean, it touches on every dimension of your life. When I was in Kenya, living there in my 20s, um, the group I was with, we went down to Tanzania for uh, Christmas and New Year's to visit with this American couple named Pete and Charlotte O'Neill. And they're, uh, they're political asylees to Tanzania, actually, because Pete was a Black Panther during the Civil Rights Movement in the East Coast, and was brought up on a gun charge by the president, I think it was Lyndon Johnson or something, and was going to be put in prison. And rather than facing that, he knew, he knew it was going to happen as a black 
Panther, black man, black in the 60s, he knew he was going to be in prison for life. So he, they fled to Tanzania and got asylum there. And they started an outreach. I don't even think they're believers, uh, but they started an outreach to inner city kids from the inner cities of America, Detroit, Chicago, New York, bringing them over. They teach them about the civil rights movement, especially their way of experiencing it, which is very different than many of us have experienced, as well as then climb Mount Kilimanjaro together as a way of empowering them to do something amazing. So we knew about, we heard about them. It was Y2K. So I'm like, let's go down there in case everything crashes. And uh, we did Christmas and New Year's with them. And we're the, I can tell you, I spent a week with them. And he would, and Charlie would tell you this, I mean, I'm from Spokane, Washington, very suburban and very, pretty white, you know, like Patagonia. And um, we, we have very little in common. And I'm all younger, he's older in, in our story. But we had such a deep and profound week together um, that I even, like, even today have such an like emotional reaction around it. And a lot of that's because we had this cultural connection. Like, we, I think they, we had turkey. I don't even know where they got the turkey, because I don't think turkeys live in Africa. Um, but we had a turkey dinner, and um, we, had, we celebrated Christmas together. And that's, so when you share that cultural identity with somebody, those connections are deep. Does this make sense? And what Paul's saying in Christ now, there's something even more profound than that that's possible and true, actually. Some supernatural, far deeper connection, um, which is to say when you're in Christ and a follower of Christ, there's a re-identification. You, are re-ident- you have a new identity, and, and Christ creates a, a deeper, more extensive connection in you, between you, um, than you could ever experience Though you experience it still as a person who's Chinese or Hispanic or Norwegian, or I did with Pete and Charlie, you still experience connection. There's something possibly even deeper, Paul's saying, than that. You feel this, you have this capacity for greater connection with people, especially people different than you, um, who've been changed by the cross of Christ than you had before. It's a stronger bond. Uh, You know, I once heard this story about uh, this guy named Addison Leach. He was the second husband of Elizabeth Elliot. So Elizabeth Elliot, many, many of you know, uh, Jim Elliot, her husband, was a missionary who died in mission service in South America. And so uh, she went on to have a pretty prolific career and married this guy named Addison Leach, who's this UK, he's from England. He was the president at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary for a while. So it's a Presbyterian seminary in, in Pennsylvania. And I'm just giving you a picture of him. He's a he's, uh, graduate of Cambridge, um, multiple PhDs. And, and he, of course, knew Jesus, and, but he had a very particular, if you know much about sort of that world, very particular way of understanding God and his convictions about what he believed about God. These are like, you have confessions and you have those kinds of things, right? So one day, the story goes that he's going to an academic conference in Colorado, and he's driving from Pennsylvania, he's, he's driving a long distance, and I think he's in the middle of like Oklahoma or Kansas or something like that, and he's on this way, his way to this conference and he turns on the radio, AM radio, and he's listening to one after another of these radio preachers, well-meaning, but to use his words, air quotes here, incomprehensible and uninformed preachers saying a lot of really foolish things, very rash and indefensible things. And there's this one in particular he tells in this story about named Brother Bob. And you can just picture Brother Bob going on and on about hellfire and brimstone on the AM radio in the middle of Oklahoma. Has anybody ever had that experience? Yeah, a few of us have. And Leach says that while listening to Brother Bob go on and on and on about heaven and hell and many other things, 
he says, it was like he had this profound spirit moment, Holy Spirit moment, began to realize that Brother Bob, though he seemingly had nothing in common with Bob theologically, culturally, he guessed they wouldn't enjoy the same foods or hobbies. They probably wouldn't vote the same way. Uh, He's going to this meeting in Colorado with other academics, all of whom, not all of whom are Christians, by the way, but all of whom are scholars, all probably who had PhDs, and kind of taught, understood what teaching looked like according to him, and probably enjoyed the same books and music, and though he's never met any of them, probably dressed the same way. I'm not, trying, I'm not putting academics down. <laughs> Some academics I know don't dress the same way. Thank you, Alicia. <laughs> and, and, and when he realized that, as if, it's as if, like I said, the Holy Spirit's in the car with him, he realized that Brother Bob, with whom he seemed to have nothing in common, nothing, was someone who he had more in common with than those he was about to spend a week with discussing academia, who he thought he had everything in common with. Brother Bob, as his phrase, was indeed his brother. Like you can think about this in terms of DNA. And here's his quote. When I realized that, I realized that as silly as Brother Bob's rhetoric sounds, and you could put anything you want in Brother Bob, okay? As different as we are from each other, and, and no matter how much he and I and those like him make me want to pull my hair out and just say, he's my brother. And though it feels at times like we're living in different universes, we're just people made in the image of God. Brother Bob is just a man. And like I said, put whoever you want in there. Brother Bob is just a man, just like me, a man in whom there's deep insecurities and deep hopes and deep fears and deep desires for peace. And Leach says, when he realized that, and like, I don't know if you realize that about yourself right now, it brought to his soul a profound sense of conviction. He's crying kind of like I am. All he could do was stop his car and begin to repent and then pray for his newfound brother, Bob. So do you hear what Leach is saying, what Paul's saying, what's true of us in Christ? This gulf has been fixed by the cross, and it's an astonishing gulf fixed and changed the way we look at other people or have the capacity to do so, how we relate to them. And it's freed us to see in them only Christ and relate to them as Christ with all the tenderness and humility and compassion and love we would bring to an encounter with Jesus. Think about that. Think about the person in your life who is so different from you, who you just, oh, I don't want to be with them. I don't want to listen to them. I don't want to talk to them. They make me literally like Brother Bob. I want to pull my hair out with the stupid things they say. Think of them if you were to approach them and relate to them as Jesus, how different that encounter would be. (laughs) That's our calling, because that's our new identity. That's our mission as the church. So a couple caveats, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, this doesn't mean that uh, us in Christ, that Jesus is flattening out and annihilating our differences, okay? Like, it doesn't mean that to be a faithful follower of Jesus, now we have to be colorblind and genderblind and apolitical and universalist and all those things. No, no. Indeed, I mean, God creates a variety of differences in this room, theological, ethnic, gender, like uh, all kinds of difference here. And so what it means is that we are various identities given to us by God as well as those that we've accumulated through our life experience um, must now and get to be put in their proper place. That's all. It's kind of like shuffling a deck of cards, but Jesus is always on the top, okay? (laughs) If you can see that. Which is to say that as followers of Christ... We're Christ's people first, and then we're Americans 
I wouldn't even say second, friends, but we're Americans second. Christ followers first, men or women second. Christ followers first, black, white, Asian, Latino, your ethnic identity, second. Christ followers first, Republican, Democrat, independent, libertarian, second, and go further down, please. Like, he's the bedrock of our identity. He has to be, and that will bring healing. That's the promise of the gospel, that in all these things we look to for purpose and identity and meaning, as we run those through the death, resurrection, and coming restoration of Jesus, like, it'll, it'll, he's going to work it out. Because see, Christ wants to, like I said at the beginning, wants to heal the broken world. And all those toxic isms that are dividing us right now, he wants to lead us in the hard but vital work of bringing healing in those areas, of, of the hard but vital work of reconciliation that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, of forgiving enemies, of welcoming and embracing all people, no matter who they are, where they come from, what they've done, what they failed to do. He wants to lead us in that work, and so he needs to be preeminent in that, in that work. He's leading us in how it looks to be human beings. Does this make sense to you? That's number one. Here's number two. This new capacity that we're given in Christ to recognize Christ and others, listen to this, is not reserved for only Christians. This is important. We're, it's not just Christians who've been empowered to view, uh, we, to, it's not just Christians who we've been empowered to view with these new eyes. Um, see, Paul, remember, he's not talking about religious categories here. These are uh, social, re- racial, political categories. <laughs> like, get your head outside the church for a moment. He's suggesting that Christ in his humanity and his death, and his life, his resurrected life, fixed the gulf between all human beings. This can sound like universal to some people, but I'm sorry, Paul said it. We're talking about one new human being. And so, as C.S. Lewis says in his sermon, The Way to Glory, I'll end this way. Beautiful statement. He says, meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and it's Monday morning. Just picture Monday morning. That's a wonderful phrase. Imagine yourself in your workplace tomorrow morning as your kid's bus stop tomorrow morning or as you wait in line for your morning coffee. It's Monday morning. The cross comes before the crown. Jesus died for all people. And a cleft in that has been opened in this world where we're invited to follow him inside that cleft. And inside that, here's what CSO says, there's one thing that we get to learn from him. And it's this that it's, it's possible for us to think too much of our own glory, but it's never possible to think too deeply or too often about the glory of our neighbor. Jesus called us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Indeed, he says, like, we, might, we have to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person we meet may be a creature, which if you saw that person in eternity, you'd be tempted to worship. All day long, in some degree, he says, we're, we're helping each other to that place. And, and so what he's saying is that a Christian understands that every person, not only in this room, but in this community, in this city, five billion years from now, if you can just fast forward, will be alive in some way, shape, or form. And we don't know how that's going to look. And so we're, given, we're, we're humbled by that. And the worldview of a Christian is radical. People are not throwaways. People are not discards. People, no matter their politics, their theology, their ethnicity, are, are, are very special. Very special because they're created in God's image. There's a, and so there's a basis to humanity. 
that is, that is essential. It's intrinsic to our theology, and it really needs to change the way we look at people. In fact, Lewis goes on in this sermon, and I'll end this way. I'll invite our worship team up. He says, it's in light of these overwhelming possibilities within people uh, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. And then he goes on and says, there are no ordinary people. You've, you've never talked to a mere mortal. None of us have. Nations, cultures, civilizations, those are mortal. Corporations, mortal. Their life is to ours like the life of a gnat, but it's immortals whom we joke with, whom we marry, whom we snub, and whom we exploit. And because of that, uh, he says, next to the Lord's Supper, which we're coming to now, your neighbor might just be the holiest object presented to your senses because in your neighbor, in some mysterious way, in some people more clearly than others, and they just don't know it yet, is Christ, the glorifier, the glorified. Glory himself is truly hidden within us. Christ has given us a new worldview. A, a, a radically new worldview, a, a, a viewpoint that Paul's saying must not only be intrinsic to our theology, but the basis for all healing that we desire. Racial, cultural, societal, spiritual, political, all of it needs to be based in Jesus. And so here's my question as we come to the table this morning, and we prepare to leave this place and go into the world which God sent us in, sending us into. Um, how might we begin to recognize Christ in all others? All others. Um, whether that's the other who's ranting at, on Facebook or Twitter, who you just can't, you just want to mute them, turn them off. Or the other in the bus, that you just, you look at them and they, they kind of freak you out a little bit. Or the other in your morning line for coffee who's just a little bit angry. Or the other living next door to you. Or the other maybe sitting right here with you right now. We don't all vote the same way. We don't all believe the same way. We don't all look the same way. And so how might we recognize Christ who is our unifying, the unifying thing about us in all others here. And in recognizing him, then fan into flame that which can become the fruit of Christ's spirit. Faith, hope, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. Christ is our peace. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, which is why we come to the table this morning, just seeking and receiving the peace of Christ. And interestingly, uh, that word peace is the word Hebrew shalom. It doesn't, it's not just a wish for no, no conflict. It's actually this, this word that means complete reconciliation and full flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, spiritual, political, because all relationships in those spheres are perfect and filled with joy. That's shalom. That's what Jesus offers us at this table this morning. My peace I leave you, my peace I give you. So might we seek the peace of nothing. This is not crackers and juice. This is the peace of Christ for us that will empower us to be the people of Christ in the world. So today, and as you come today, here's my invitation. Now I want to be part of this with you. Is there someone, is there a situation, is there a burden on your shoulders that the peace of Christ needs to reign over? It could be the stuff going on in our politics right now. Would you bring that in, your, in a posture of humility to Christ? Uh, it could be a relationship that's off the rails right now. It could be a family member. It could be a loved one. It could be a friend or coworker. Um, it could just be a burden on you right now. Just, ah, uh, oh, this is not right. Maybe it's something in you, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and just you want Christ to reign over that, to bring peace to that. Would you bring that to the table and exchange the body and blood of Christ to give him all the things that are broken within us? Would we do that? Let me take a moment to pray and then... Um, 
Let's take a time of communion. God, thank you for this time of communing together. Um, we want this, this celebration of your death and resurrection to be more than just a transaction, more than just crackers and juice, more than just routine. So would your spirit move now in and under these elements uh, through our community um, so that we would have the capacity to be your people to the neighborhoods you've placed us, to the city of Seattle, to the workplaces we're called to, to our families, all those places, God. We long to be you. And it's in your name, Christ, that we pray. Amen. A few instructions here. Our communion, you can start taking that. That's great. Our communion is all gluten-free, so everybody's welcome to this table. You don't have to be a member of our church to receive. And again, our children are coming back right now. If you have younger kids, this is nursery and preschool. I'd really I'd invite you to go get those right now and bring them in. We'd love to have them as part of worship with us. So these are gifts of God for the people of God. Let the people come.